You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. What a beautiful day for horses in the morning. You are listening to the number one horse podcast in the world. Here's your entertaining look at the horse world and the people in it. I'm Ashley Winch in Kansas City, Missouri, and you're listening to Horses in the Morning on the Horse Radio Network for Tuesday, January 30th, episode 3354. Good morning, horse world. For today's highlight show, we're featuring an episode from our friend Alicia Harlov, host of The Humble Hoof. Alicia is a full-time hoof care provider on the North Shore of Massachusetts and a member of Progressive Hoof Care Practitioners. Her passion for hoof care started with her Mustang, Vinny's, diagnosis with navicular disease and corresponding soft tissue damage. Determined to help him, she pursued as much education as she could, traveling throughout the United States and the United Kingdom to work with a variety of mentors covering various pathologies and rehabilitation techniques for hooves to achieve soundness. This eventually led her to leave her career as a public school teacher to focus on hoof care. She loves educating owners on how to grow the healthiest hoof possible and believes that getting a horse sound is often a matter of finding the right pieces to the puzzle. She is on a never-ending journey to find as many tools to help as she can. When Alicia isn't working on horses or checking in with their owners, she enjoys spending time with her husband, horses, dog, cat, and chickens. In today's episode from July 2023, Alicia discusses the challenges of hoof care with Pat Riley, Chief of Farrier Services at New Bolton Center in Pennsylvania, who suggests using evidence-based podiatry with specific tools and metrics to track hoof morphology, movement, and biomechanics for optimal horse care. You can find The Humble Hoof wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy! Welcome to The Humble Hoof Podcast. My name is Alicia Harlov. This is a podcast for both horse owners and hoof care professionals, offering discussions into various philosophies on the health of the hoof and soundness of your horse. Please check us out on Facebook or at thehumblehoof.com. A special thank you to our sponsor, Equithrive. This one goes out to all the horses with the crusty necks, fleshy backs, and girthy middles. The horses who gain a few extra pounds simply by breathing air. The easy keepers on limited pastures. The folks at Equithrive know there is nothing easy about easy keepers. That's why they have formulated products just for you. Equithrive's Metabarol is a pelleted supplement that is scientifically proven to support healthy metabolic function and a healthy inflammatory response in horses. It's bona fide joint and metabolic support, all in one easy to feed pellet. Visit equithrive.com today and use the promo code HUMBLEHOOF to get 20% off your first order plus free shipping. www.equithrive.com. A few months ago, I went to a seminar at Horseshoes Plus in New Hampshire, and Pat Riley was a speaker. Pat's resume is pretty impressive. 
He works at the New Bolton Center in Pennsylvania as the Chief of Farrier Services and the Director of the Applied Polymer Research Laboratory. And he has a graduate diploma in equine locomotor research from the Royal Veterinary College. I felt like every five seconds I was nodding in agreement with so many different things he said about how we assess balance and how we watch their movement. And I was really impressed with his familiarity with the various gait analysis systems and ways to know how we are affecting a horse's movement and comfort. At the end of the seminar, I asked him if he'd be willing to be on the podcast. And it just took us a few months to find a time to work it out. But finally, we got on a call to chat about all different things from evidence-based podiatry to how we know if we're helping the horse. So why don't we start with you just telling us about your journey into hoof care and what you're currently doing now? Oh, <laughs> well, I've been involved with horses for most of my life. I actually grew up in Southern New Hampshire and I had a family member who was a very uh, talented rider. My sister used to ride for the U S equestrian team back when they had a young rider program and was working and training with some of the world's best people. At the same time, I was working for a veterinarian who was taking care of our horses, but it was a mixed animal practice. And I just fell in love with that idea of a job. I wanted to be a, uh, I'll say I wanted to be a veterinarian, but very specifically, I wanted to be a small animal orthopedic surgeon. I love the idea of doing surgery. I love the idea of working with animals who are having problems and trying to make them better. Uh, and I also love, you know, the team aspect of what we do, you know, being a, you know, working in a veterinary hospital, you're obviously relying on everybody, you know, you have a team around you. And I really do enjoy that environment. So I went to school and I actually went to the University of Vermont for my undergrad work. And my grades were good, but not good enough to get into vet school. And I decided to take a, a semester off and went to farrier school in the hope that that would look good on a vet school application. And as soon as I started shoeing horses, I just knew this was for me. You know, growing up, horses were kind of, I enjoy riding, but not not to the way other people seem to. Uh, and in a lot of ways, horses are, there's a lot of work. My brother and I ended up being the work horses around the farm. We were cleaning stalls at, you know, six o'clock every morning and bringing horses in and doing loading hay, doing all those kind of things. So horses equated to work for me in a way that they don't seem to for a lot of my clients. But I, I actually really love the craftsmanship of being a farrier, the routine of traveling to somebody's farm, performing that job and doing it and having that be a reflection of my skill and interest and abilities. And, you know, it was, it was pretty clear as soon as I started shoeing horses that this was not going to be a stepping stone to a vet education, but actually something that I, you know, wanted to do as a career. And I do think that influenced it in a couple of different ways, right? So, you know, when you grow up as a teenager working in a vet clinic, the only, you know, any slow moments or lunch breaks, Literally, all I had to, to read in the hospital there were different journals and, you know, research reports and different, you know, studies. That was what was in the in the hospital. That's what you read. And it kind of changed your thinking a little bit. I think, you know, for me, you know, thinking about problems and managing problems, you know, through some of the scientific literature was something that I think was a little different in how I was introduced to shoeing horses compared to what a lot of farriers experience. So I ended up, I started out with the same type of practice that every farrier does for about the first 10 years of practicing. I was driving around farm to farm in southern New Hampshire and northern Massachusetts and really enjoyed that type of work. And then when I started getting some of the opportunities to 
uh, work with veterinarians and work in, you know, with a couple of, of start out with a small group of veterinarians. But I, I think for a farrier that has an interest in that, it kind of grew pretty quickly. And I ended up, you know, doing a lot of work with a lot of different vets and a lot of different vet clinics. And I think there are a few things that, you know, I think there's a it's kind of a rule that it takes just everybody just about five years to develop a practice. And for those first five years that I was developing a practice, I, you know, I guess it's a nice thing when your name is passed along and people call you. It makes you feel good about what you're doing. You get a relatively high opinion of yourself as a farrier because you have nothing but success, right? People are calling you and you have more people calling you this year than they called last year. And that positive reinforcement makes you, you know, feel like you know what you're doing. And then as I started going through and noticing, you know, you reflect on your work and a lot of the things that early on you think you can fix, you kind of realize, well, this horse that had a club foot five years ago still has an upright foot or this horse that had underrun heels still has an underrun heel. And I think it, it, you know, maybe that's something that's a little different. I know some farriers, you know, respond to this differently, but it's not that I focus on the negative stuff, but I was always acutely aware that, you know, some of the horses that I was working on, you know, did not have ideal looking feet even after they were in my care for a number of years. And I wanted to know more about that. So those types of, I'll say working at places like Rochester Equine Clinic, which is a place I spent a lot of time working as a, as a young farrier. I had an opportunity to invite different clinicians in as speakers for a vet farrier conference. You know, you start noticing that all these people are giving you answers in different ways. You know, you can have a you know, how should you manage horses with mismatched feet? How do you balance a, feet, a foot? These are things that I wasn't entirely comfortable that I was handling and managing these things correctly. And I started noticing over more and more years than listening to more and more speakers that I'm not alone in that. Uh, that some of these things that we've been arguing about for centuries when it comes to hoof care was really, those are not just, you know, forget what I think I know out of this you know, if you look at it, take yourself out of the equation. There are a lot of horses that have less than perfect looking feet that have lameness. And how do we know that we're managing those things appropriately? That's kind of, I think over the years, you know, both recognizing that there are a lot of different ways to successfully do things and that nobody seems to have the correct answer all of the time. And with my background and understanding of, of science and research, I think I've kind of moved more and more toward that as a focus in my career is trying to understand the effects of what we do and how we might be able to do those things better. Yeah, absolutely. And and you're currently doing quite a bit of research, aren't you? At you're at New Bolton, correct? Yeah, I work at University of Pennsylvania at New Bolton Center. You know, it's easy. This is kind of a which comes first, the chicken or the egg, you know, kind of aspect of things. In my job right now, yeah, I do get to do research, and I'm very fortunate that that is something that I get to do a lot of. But that's something that's really, you know, I started this when I was still, you know, in southern New Hampshire driving around in a truck and you ask questions. And I think for a lot of us, we just leave these answers there and say, well, you know, you develop a line of thinking about why this happens the way it does or the effect of this shoe on this foot. But I think with some of the background that I had in terms of, you know, reading studies, you think of things a little bit differently and then you start thinking, well, how could I prove that? How could I document that type of change? Is that really what's happening? So that became, you know, not only a fun thing, and I'll say an important thing, I think research is very important as it relates to hoof care, but it was also primarily from the point of 
I don't feel like I have all the answers and I want to be better. So it was really to try and both make myself a better farrier. And if I'm working in a referral practice, there's nothing worse than having to go back to somebody who's been managing feet in one particular way and trying to, you know, implement something different if all I have is my opinion to base that change off of. I, it always makes me very uncomfortable to pick up the phone and call somebody who's been caring for feet and say, you know, I think we should try doing this a little bit differently. What do you think about that? And if it's just based on opinions, then I feel like that's really unfair to everybody. Uh, you know, it's there's so much we don't know. But I would feel much more confident if I could say, you know, there's this study out there that showed that if you do this, this happens, and, you know, it's going to change it in a way that I think is going to help this horse. That's what, you know, I wish we had a lot more of that information and a lot more things that we could say, yep, this is the right way to manage something. But, you know, as has been the case for centuries before either of us were around and doing this, there's a lot of arguing about, you know, optimal foot care. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I mean, when you're talking about the questions that you thought when you're driving around in your truck, those are things that I think about too. Like, I'm sure a lot of us think about like, are we doing the best we can for the horse or what is the right thing? You know, is there a better approach? And uh, I mean, working on your own, it can feel kind of isolating to know if we're going up to this case and doing what what the horse needs. And so one of my biggest questions when I come to horses is like, am I helping this horse in the way that I should? Um, and that's why I really wanted to reach out to you is because when you did that seminar, I mean, it was a few months ago now in New Hampshire where you talked about evidence-based podiatry and spent a lot of time talking about the different biomechanic sensor systems. It was so intriguing to have more objective feedback on what was happening when you were working on a horse's foot. And so I'd love you to talk a little bit about what, you know, that evidence-based podiatry means and how it has changed some of your perceptions on various approaches. Well, boy, there's a big question right there. And I'm smiling (laughs) because I love it. No, and I, I, I think there are a few things. Let me start by, you know, saying there are. I mean, there's so many. Pick your answer, pick your topic. And there's so few things in hoof care that have a universal acceptance in terms of this is the way we do it. I don't, I mean, it doesn't matter what the topic is. Straight hoof pasture and alignment, how much sole depth should you have, shoes versus no shoes, how much expansion is good. I mean, we could argue any of those points and all of those things work some of the time and none of us have all of the answers. So, I I think one of the first things to say is that as an industry, we've never had the ability, I shouldn't say never, but we really have had a limited ability to actually back up our anecdotal observations, what you and I would see with our kids that we're working on. And we're really not trained and haven't had a great opportunity to put all of that in a context. How is your practice different than mine? How are the horses that you're managing responding compared to the way they're responding for me? Those are things that really do put us in a bit of an isolation right there because we're all learning one career at a time, you know, and then we generally start over again with the next generation. And part of that's just that, you know, our research tools available to us were very limited. Today, it's almost the opposite. At this point, I think one of the things that's happened is technology has become so ubiquitous, so inexpensive, so available that now a lot of the questions that you and I have driving around in the truck, these are things that we can answer. And that's exciting. I mean, it really doesn't have to, you know, research used to have to take place in places like New Bolton Center or big, you know, equine institutions because the technology was so expensive and so cumbersome. 
and now it's not. I mean, now we can do these things in a much different, you know, way. I think our limitation right now is that as barriers, we don't always understand how to incorporate research into our practice and how to read studies and understand it and even understanding some of the technologies that are that are available, how they work, what are the limiting factors of it. So, yeah, that's all stuff that I think I can say more than anything else. I'm excited at this type of research and the the tools that we have for conducting research. It's never been better. It's never been higher. And I think these are some of the most important changes to the farrier industry or to the hoof care industry that, you know, if we look over a couple of centuries, I think this could be one of those moments that really changes how we understand and how we practice. Yeah. A special thank you to our wonderful sponsor, Cavallo. For our humble hoof listeners, they are offering 20% off their Cavallo Trek hoof boots using the coupon code HRN at checkout. The Trek is the world's most popular and versatile hoof boot and Cavallo's toughest trail boot, while also doubling as an option for therapy or rehab. The front closure system makes it easily adaptable to various hoof shapes, and the TPU upper design allows for maximum strength while minimizing weight for the comfort and ease of movement for your horse. These are recommended by vets and trainers and also loved as transport boots by barrel racers, ship jumpers, dressage riders, and everyone in between. Again, for 20% off a pair of treks, use the code HRN at checkout at cavallo-inc.com. And something that I've also wondered too is like having this instant feedback, has that changed how you shoe horses that you come up to and has it changed what you think about things that you have done in the past in terms of shoeing? Well, so, uh, boy, there's a, I could go a lot of different directions with that. <laughs> Sorry. Let me, let me, no, it's okay. I, I, let me give a, an example of it and something that made a difference as I was, you know, learning to do this. I, um, when I first started working up at Rochester Equine Clinic, right, which is a medium-sized, you know, it's a, a good private practice in, in southern New Hampshire. One of the things that they started asking me to do was to write discharge letters. You know, this is what you did, you know, so that the farrier at home and the owner and the veterinarian at home have an idea of what changes we made. And writing that up is very, very challenging. And if it's if you doubt that, try it. Try it as an exercise the next time you shoe a horse and just write down in a paragraph or two, what changes you made. I moved the breakover point back. Well, from where to where? Mm-hmm. You know, I wedged the horse's foot up. Well, from what angle to what angle? So I started out using the Metron system, which is a digital photography-based system for that purpose. So I could document and just send pictures home with a horse and say, this is what it looked like. These are the toe length. This is the heel angle. There are a lot of different values that come up with that. And I thought, well, that's even better because... These might be values. We all use different reference points when we're discussing hoof care. And this way, I'm just going to send home kind of a complete record of what the outside of the foot looked like and what I did on that given day. But along the way, one of the things I thought I was going to do is, you know, there's the topic of underrun heels, right? Underrun heels are described in the literature as being when the heel angle is five degrees lower than the toe angle. And we describe an ideal foot is having the heel and toe angles grow in uh, in parallel, right? So that they grow in in the same angles. Now, a few things happen along the way. One, I intended to show how, you know, these horses I had with underrun heels, I would do X, Y, and Z and make these shoeing changes and show how that heel angle improved over time. 
And one of the things I can tell you is they didn't. I still have, I have yet to find one horse for whom under run heels, I, I actually significantly change the angle of the heel relative to the toe. So that's one of those things like up until that point, I thought that I was very capable of fixing these things. And now I have a very different approach of what I'm doing. It's a self-educating process where I can look at it and say, well, you know, what's our ability to change the angle of the heel growth relative to the angle of growth of the toe? And I've actually extended that out. And I would say even on your podcast, I would say if anybody can really document changes in multiple horses over time, I'd love to see it because we talk about different ways of fixing it. But I have yet to see a lot of people really demonstrate that they can actually improve those types of changes. Uh, and then just really to top it off, since I'm on that topic, there was also a study that was done uh, by Sue Dyson over in England, where she actually looked at underrun heels as being a potential cause of lameness in horses. And I still love this, you know, that in her paper, what she found was that underrun heels, horses with underrun heels were no likely to have lameness that originated in the foot or that was found in the foot compared to horses that were ideal, which that's also one of those things where you look at and say, well, Maybe underrun heels are really not a source of lameness. It's just the kind of thing that we just don't like the look of it. And it mm -hmm. makes our job challenging to manage. But, you know, that's, you know, are these things caused by horses wearing shoes? Not in my practice. And we actually did papers that showed that. Were they caused by farriers leaving toes too long and leaving the angles too low? No. We actually took hundreds of horses and there was no correlation between those values and the severity of the underrun heel. So I think that becomes a really good example of just kind of saying, I thought I had answers until you start applying, you know, the ability to follow your work. And I think that's probably true for a lot of us. So we have a lot of things. That's not to say that horses didn't get better. I mean, a lot of these horses became more comfortable. They didn't become more comfortable because the underrun heels were resolving. They were potentially becoming more comfortable because the diagnosis had nothing to do with that or they, whatever was causing the pathology resolved, or whatever other reason. But it wasn't necessarily that these horses became more comfortable because the heel angles became closer aligned with the toe. And that's how to, maybe that's a good example of how I think about things in general. I think there are a lot of things that we have historically argued, discussed, and that's part of the problem right there is that, you know, I spent years thinking I could fix a problem, which... I couldn't. And now I'm not even sure that it's a problem to begin with. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's, that's the stuff that I think is so challenging about hoof care is that, you know, any of these topics we look at, we've argued about for centuries. I don't care if it's shoes versus barefoot or hoof expansion or hoof deformation or the use of this shoe versus this shoe. We have lots of theories and lots of, you know, research projects with an N of one, you know, single case studies that we use to describe how things are supposed to work. And I don't think we're always correct. I think we have a lot of potential room to grow with how we think of that. Yeah. And honestly, it makes me think like, it's really easy. And I'm saying this to myself too. Like it's really easy to have an opinion unless, until you're asked to quantify it. Like until you're asked to give a reason for that opinion that actually is backed by some kind of uh, tangible evidence and not just say, you know, well, I see this. Cause I can say like, similar to you, I can say like, oh, well, it looks like underrun heels improve when I do X, Y, and Z. And I, right. what's really funny is I have Metron software and I should be taking more pictures and using it more because 
I now I'm curious to see what that actually looks like in my own cases where I think, you know, oh, hey, the horse seems to be moving better. It seems like the feet look better. But are they really, you know, and and what is that in terms of quantitative data like or what data is there to support my opinion? And um, yeah, because it's so funny, like you're talking about we've argued for not me, obviously, I'm newer in the hoof care world, but people in hoof care have argued for years and years and years. But now there's actually some more technology to be able to say, you know, what is backing up our opinion on this side of the argument? Well, no, I was thinking there was a, I had a a conference up at Rochester. God had to have been 25, 30 years ago. Uh, And Dave Duckett was the speaker. And I remember him standing up and saying, you know, talking about mismatched feet. And a member of the audience raised his hand and said, well, of course, the right front foot is always the upright foot. And the whole room is agreeing with him. And I'm kind of sitting there in my seat fuming a little bit because I'm like, you know, that's not science. Like, you can't just, you know, say these things. And it's, you know, like, I actually thought, well, as I was driving home that night, I had a lecture to begin the next day. I thought, you know, I have all this data in my Metron database, as you do. And you could actually go through and look at this and tell me if I'm right or wrong. Put it in the notes (laughs) and tell me if I am incorrect. But I thought, I'm going to prove to these farriers that the point they made yesterday was wrong. And that being that the right front foot was always the upright foot in the mismatch group. And then, son of a gun, I spent the night going over and processing the data in every possible way I could. And in, you know, the majority of cases, the right front foot was the upright foot in my database. You know, so there are times that, you know, even when you, you know, there's nothing like having some of this information and data available to you. And then I went back and looked and said, well, maybe that's because... I'm either right or left-handed, maybe or the last farriers were right or left-handed, and maybe that causes a difference. But almost everything all the way through, the heel angles were lower in the left foot. The toe angles were ang- lower in the left foot. The disparity, there were more underrun cases in the left feet. There were more horses, the time we used the definition of 60 degrees as being a club foot. I had more club feet than I did in, in right feet than I did in left feet. Now, I still have to go back and this would require more statistical analysis, right? That would be, you know, an interesting one to say, did these things happen by chance or did I have enough numbers in there to truly account for it? But those are the type of things that I would say probably more to me than anyone else. And maybe I'm just really stupid and really wrong in how I think about feet. But I think the ability to measure these things has really, you know, most of the theories that I've had have proven to be incorrect at various more than I'm right. Or not exactly what I expected to see. And I could I found that with trials with accelerometers, I found that with trials with force plates, I found that with all kinds of different technologies. Is that it's and, and this is again, it's probably and should be an obvious thing, is you know, this is a very complicated subject. And if this were easy, we would all have figured this out centuries ago. So it's probably not a, you know, shouldn't be a surprise to anybody that we have multifactorial problems with horses' feet. And some things you do may help X, but make Y worse or vice versa. It's a, it's, it's, it's a very complicated game. And at the end of the day, how do we know, you know, how good is good? How sound is sound? How, what is our target for these? I want to give a shout out to Grid As New Mud Control Grids. Where mud is a problem, mud control grids are a game changer. They instantly stop mud with little to no ground prep whatsoever. And they are perfect for anywhere that gets maybe just a little muddy or places where you're sinking in above your fetlocks. 
a turnout, around a feeding station, a water tub, your track system, or just a walkway, these grids make an instant huge difference in land and mud management. They're environmentally friendly all around, they're made from 100% recycled plastic, and they're recyclable, with a 20-year manufacturer's guarantee. They have over 21 million square feet installed over the past 20 years. Han Mud Control Grids and other products are now readily available in New Hampshire, Vermont, and Massachusetts only through Grid As New, mudcontrolgrids.com. We know that you'll love them as much as we do. So again, check out mudcontrolgrids.com. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, I'm going to ask you another tough question. I apologize that all these are like super, (laughs) you know, uh, just very in-depth questions that I'm sure you could could have an entire episode on. But I think one thing I struggle with is, you know, once we have research on something, it... I think the the tendency is then for people to latch onto this and say like this is the right way. Like if research shows that most ho- or, or horses seem to do better with X, Y, and Z, then that's what we should always do. And do you yeah. think that you know is there a a right way to approach every pathology and you know some we just haven't found yet, or you know is there variability in in what's right and and not for an individual horse? I guess. Yeah. I think one of the, you know, there are a couple of words in the in the farrier world that, that bother me a lot, right? I mean, the word balance sets my hair on fire because it's, <laughs> you know, we all use balance and describe it differently. We all use different reference points to describe it. But, you know, we I think we tend to think of these things in terms of, you know, words like ideal, optimal, correct. I mean, they're they're so they're almost very linear thinking. And I think, again, this is a very complicated issue. So, you know, if you turn around, like there's been some good research out there that elevating the heels takes strain off the deep digital flexor tendon, just as an example, right? But what it doesn't tell us, if we are presented with a horse that has an injury to the deep flexor tendon, how high should we elevate those heels? Well, we don't know. I mean, it doesn't tell us that. There isn't research that really would describe that. Does it, you know, should we be using a wedge pad or a wedge shoe or trimming the, you know, foot to elevate the, high, you know, the level of the heels just by, you know, what we can accomplish by trimming? I think those are all possibly yes questions and we don't have definitive answers to this. I have a research project coming up right now where we've been using, looking at the effect of egg bar shoes, which actually create a, about a four and a half degree wedge in certain footings. Right. So that way the horse is going to get the uh, benefit of heel elevation and a wedge heel height, but only when it's working in soft footing. So which one of those are correct? I honestly don't know. I mean, there are so many different ways. And I and I this is the way I approach it. You know, even today I could describe in a discharge letter to a farrier that this horse came in and it had an injury to the deep digital flexor tendon. And therefore we addressed it this way. But that doesn't mean that that's the only way to do it or the best way. It's the way that, and ultimately, this is what we all are stuck with, is that we all have to do something. So I usually state that as, you know, this is what I chose to do, but there are other ways. And if you, you know, have different feelings about what's going to work for your horse and your environment, please reach out and talk to us about it. And I'm happy to think it out loud. I I think that's, uh, you know, we know, for instance, that putting uh, wedge pads on, can concentrate force on the heels. And for some horses, that may be a problem. So, you know, maybe having that wedge there all the time is not 
necessarily ideal. And maybe we should just be elevating those heels when the horse is working. And that's the concept of using a bar shoe in combination with soft footing is you get the relief on the flexor tendon, but only when the horse is working. You have other cases where, you know, if you take strain off the deep digital flexor tendon, we know it goes on the suspensory among other places. So, you know, that if you have a horse that has a, you know, a history or of, you know, suspensory pathology, that may not be the best plan. So there are all kinds of different ways that we can factor these nuggets, these little research. And, and I, maybe that's a better way to think of it. I tend to think about research as almost being little jigsaw puzzle pieces that we use to kind of paint the whole picture of what we should do. But none of them are going to be descriptive enough to say, this is exactly what you need to do with every horse that walks into your practice. I think that's one of those things that farriers misunderstand about research, is that they're generally not telling you exactly what to do, but more describing the effect of different things so that we can then put it in, you know, into our whole thinking and have that affect the outcome. Yeah. And, and obviously I think we've all seen horses that have like terrible radiographs or, you know, have these like imperfect hoof angles where the horse was sound, but also vice versa, where these horses have like these perfect radiographs and like everything looks great and, and they're dead lame. And so, you know, how do we become more objective (laughs) in like how we're helping, you know, are we helping this horse? Is everything going well? without just becoming blinded to blinded by or married to like what is easy to measure. So I I don't know if that's, there's a way to answer that. (laughs) Well, no, I I think one of the real questions and kind of what you're asking is how do we know if we're doing the right thing? How do we know if we're doing a good job? Um, You know, I started out by saying that early on in my practice, you know, more people called me. So I assumed that I was doing a good job (laughs) and I, I probably erroneously thought that that meant I was doing well. And what it probably was really a reflection of is that carriers are in demand. I mean, having people that want to take care of feet is, you know, just about everybody that I know that starts in the industry. If you treat your business well, you know, has the potential to grow. And, I, you know, it's, it's always a fun exercise. I don't care if you're in, you know, southern New Hampshire or in Wyoming or in New Zealand, right? You know, it, it's interesting to look at it and say, Think of the worst farrier you know, the worst hoof care provider you know, and they probably have more business and they know what to do with as well. So just being busy and, you know, having a busy client book is probably not enough in my mind to say, therefore, we know we're doing a good job. I personally think that sound feet and horses are come in all different shapes and sizes. And I think the idea of trying to make it something look perfect, you know, either in a photograph or in a hoof morphology or on an x-ray. I think that certainly is does not work all the time. I think there are a lot of, you know, horses that have different looking feet that have never had lameness. And I know horses, as you said, that have perfect looking feet that have never been sound. And I think, you know, turning around and recognizing that nobody has had more money spent developing their own personal footwear than Michael Jordan. And Michael Jordan still had, you know, sprained ankles and injuries that happened. So yeah, it's a great question. How do we know on balance if we're doing a good job and how we're managing things, and especially in light of the fact that there's so many different opinions uh, about what to do? It really is a challenge. It really is difficult. Yeah, I don't, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know that I have a great answer on that. But as we go through and start using more technologies instead of some of these answering questions, I, I guess in the past I probably would have said that soundness is what matters more than anything. You know, if the horse is sound and moving well, I don't care if the horse is barefoot or shod or if the shoes are on sideways and upside down. If the horse is sound, 
I'm happy with, you know, that's, that's the ultimate goal. But now with some of the sensor systems that we have for gait analysis, I can also say I've never measured a horse, even horses that we had an exercise a few years ago where we went down to the Maryland five-star, the highest level of eventing and the best event horses in our country. And we evaluated these horses both with regard to foot morphology, using Metron to take pictures of the feet, and also using a gait analysis system to look at the symmetry of how horses were moving. And even in these horses that were actively competing at the highest levels, there wasn't one perfectly symmetric horse. In fact, I've never measured one, you know, with perfectly symmetric gait. I've never measured a horse that had perfectly symmetric feet. So now we're faced with a question of saying, do we need to redescribe or redefine, you know, what sound is in the age of sensor technologies where we can, you know, literally have the capacity to use our iPhone and use uh, <laughs> use an app on there that uses artificial intelligence to, you know, quantify a movement and push off and landing within one or two millimeters of accuracy is, you know, head movement or sacrum movement. It, it really is a, a fascinating question. Yeah. And honestly, I think that's something that I want to dive into more just in my own practices. Like there's these, all these various gait analysis systems that are becoming more and more accessible. And, yep. you know, instead of just looking at an image of a horse standing still to decide if that's the correct thing to do with that horse, you know, instead assessing them in movement seems at least to me, like it could be a lot more valuable in a lot of instances to see if a horse is doing better or not. Yeah. Isn't it cool to think that, you know, 30, 40 years ago, all of our conversations were about hoof angles and that's because we had, you know, all of us had hoof gauges that measured toe length and hoof angles in our truck somewhere. You know, so that was how we communicated because it's what we could measure. And then when we started taking radiographs, you know, all of a sudden now the discussion of balance changed into something entirely different. But but those are also static moments, you know, like a single moment in time. And, of course, the angle of the foot's constantly changing and it's constantly growing. There's one study that found that the angle of the foot gets three and a half degrees lower, you know, over a six-week interval. So... What do we do with that? Do you want the horse to have straight phalangeal alignment at the beginning or at the end of the shoeing cycle? You know, how do you factor growth into that? Because it doesn't always stay the same. And again, in the paper I'm using right now, what I can say is that the angle of the foot at mid stance is two degrees lower on a front foot than it is when the horse is, you know, walking in a soft arena. Well, which one of those is, (laughs) when do I want that foot to be aligned with the, uh, have the phalanges aligned within the foot, if that's our goal. And we don't know that that's our goal because there's never actually been a good research project that said that straight phalangeal alignment was protective of horses from injury in the first place. It's just, you know, the guideline that we've all used. So I think our technology, as our technology changes and becomes better and better, we're asking more sophisticated questions and actually able to, you know, make some of those changes. I know that horses are different when you put a rider on their back. All of a sudden, the idea of balance and how they move changes. And it's not just a rider. It's, you know, horses actually tend to be most asymmetric in their gait when you put a near Olympic level rider on their back as opposed to a novice level rider. So it gets more complicated. And the footfall and distribution of force on the foot is not only different between different gaits, so therefore balance changes, but 
you know, even between a collected trot, a medium trot, and an extended trot, and a dressage horse, the force distribution of, of the foot is different. The breakover location is different. How do we put all that stuff together and have an answer that we can give with confidence when we have such a wide range of not only intrinsic factors, different conformations of the horse, but all these extrinsic variables that come into it. What surface are they working on? What job are they doing? What's the talent and ability of the rider? When are they within the shoeing interval? It's, I'm smiling when I say this, but these are the things that become incredibly complicated on a, you know, academic level, on a theoretical level, trying to understand something that is both seemingly obvious in hoof balance, right? But there are all these things that affect it and change it. And what do we do with all that information and how do we put it together? Something that we all literally have to make a choice on every time any of us pick a foot up and say, I want to make some sort of intervention right here. How do we do that with confidence? And it's, you know, uh, it's actually interesting to me that I think horses are as adaptive and tolerant of different ideas of managing their feet as they seem to be. Yeah. I'm kind of surprised. You know, like I said, you can think of the worst barrier in your neighborhood and they have more business and they know what to do with and they have clients that love them and think they're great. Right. And I think that's something that we also, every time you start getting a bit full of your own uh, idea of self-worth, I think of that and it makes me, you know, it helps to temper the <laughs> perception of what, my perception of what I'm doing. Yeah. So. And something that I'm just curious about too is, you know, when using the gait analysis systems, are you using them to aim for a certain kind of balance and movement? Or, you know, if you're, if you're noticing a horse with that sensor system is landing really hard laterally, do you seek to get them to land level? Like, is there a, uh, something that you're aiming towards when you use no. those? Well, no, actually that's a really good point on a bunch of different levels because, I think, first of all, when you like, let's just take footfall as an I, as an example, right? 68% of horses land laterally on their front feet. 97% of horses land laterally on their hind feet. That comes from a study that was done by Micah Von Heel. And according to her research, trimming did not affect that, right? Now, the problem is that we can't see that. The human eye can only capture about 20 frames per second in terms of, you know, speed. So the human eye is a bit limited in what we're able to process. When a horse has some uh, discomfort, they can change how they put their foot down. And those things have all been shown in studies as well, that they will put their foot down differently if you make the horse painful over here. Again, I use, you know, do we want a horse to land heel first or flat or toe first? Well, I started lots of arguments by putting up, I mentioned the uh, how gait changes with an extended trot. Horses tend to land more toe first in the extended trot, which I don't think is a gait flaw. I think it's just a variation of how the horse is moving. So I think some of it, and maybe initially I was looking at it, assuming that there was a an end goal and an ideal, but I don't think we know that, right? I think now this is a type of thing where I'm looking at things and then trying to understand it. I would actually say, the great majority of horses in my practice land on the outside of their of their front feet in particular, load centrally, kind of around the ducket stop point, and then break over slightly to the outside of the foot. But I think that's one of the things when you start using any of these systems that are available, is this is part of the self-education that I was describing earlier, is that, you know, you start seeing all these horses land asymmetrically, 
and it makes you question the importance of that or of what you're doing. And then as you go through and sort it out and see that that's, you know, observing more frequently than uh, happening more frequently than not, it is really, really helpful from a self-educating point of view. I think it, initially when I start using a new system, whether it's, you know, the SLEP system, whether it's Equigate, whether it's the TechScan in-shoe force measuring system or the Workman hoofbeats, and I've used all of these, you know, consistently, regularly, you know, I think initially the first thing is looking at my ability to make some of these changes and look at what's normal. And then you start seeing patterns that develop over time. And like I said, there are so many things that I could, you know, recount of times where I thought I, you know, anticipated seeing one set of changes only to find that that didn't happen. (laughs) And really, uh, it's very humbling. Yeah. And that's something that I feel like, you know, I would love to work more with, or even I know that I talked to you about maybe coming up here here for a clinic at some point, just to see, you know, a a before and after of, of horses with a gait analysis system, because I think that, you know, even in my head, I have this like ideal of how I want this horse to be moving before and after I work on them and maybe, or after I should say, and, and maybe that just isn't, you know, maybe forcing them to do a certain move a certain way isn't what we should be aiming for. And I don't know, these are all questions that I still have, you know? Yep. Well, I think, you know, I think some of the things, and I'm, I'm smiling again, as I say this, but, you know, when I'm teaching the vet students at Penn, I, and I tend to be, this is the message I give them is that, you know, Everything works some of the time. None of it works all the time. I don't let anybody use the term balance in my shop. The rule is if you use the term balance, it kick you out for two minutes and then you have to think of a different way of of expressing what you were, you know, what you meant by that, you know, because I want them, because we all use balance in a different way. Is it because of how they impact? Is it phalangeal alignment? Medial lateral balance? There's so many different definitions of that, that it's not, it's not actually fair to answer them that way. But then when you get to... Um, speakers and clinicians, myself included, right? I mean, I've told you how many times I'm wrong on things, but we've all been in this situation where I was at a conference last fall. One speaker stood up and was talking about horses that had mismatched front feet saying you have to make them the same. There's no data to support it. That's their experience. The next speaker stands up and says the exact opposite thing that when you have mismatched feet, you have to treat each foot as an individual. And again, no evidence behind that. It's just that here we have two practitioners with it, and, and they're good. They're very talented people at managing feet, but they have completely opposite understandings of what's necessary. And neither case was it said like, well, you should do this some of the time and this some of the time. No. I mean, just take that issue of mismatched feet and say, you know, I've heard enough talks over the years over that to believe that there must not be one single right way to manage that. And I actually got a kick out of this because I probably had six or seven former of mine sitting in front of me. And every time one of the speakers was making a comment about this, they around and look at me and smile, which means they're remembering this stuff. And that's what I want them to do is think about these things in especially, I shouldn't say challenge speakers, because I don't think that's necessarily fair. Uh, I think understanding where they're coming from and how they're basing their decisions is one thing. I actually think in terms of clinics, I still think my favorite conferences so far have been times where, you know, I've been able to evaluate horses in a couple of different ways, using a couple of different systems. The speaker comes in and makes their changes 
And then we actually see if the changes that they made, how did the horse respond to it? And that's, that's still challenging, right? Because measuring a horse instantly after it's worked on, that's not always 100% accurate either. There are other challenging factors. If you put on a new pair of shoes, how long should it take for them to, you know, if I shoe a horse and it's not instantly better, I don't think that necessarily means that I've done the wrong thing. I think sometimes it takes a while for those changes to take place. But these are the things I think if our industry is to continue growing. And specifically, you know, if we as farriers and, and hoof care providers are to, if we want to be, and I think we have a very, very unique and important perspective on horses' feet because we look at them all day, every day. And we see things that veterinarians and trainers and riders don't. We have our own understanding of these things. I think we have to do a better job of making our point and making our point in a way that the rest of the world can understand and embrace. And I think science is the language that we use to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. And and honestly, I mean, so those are the questions I kind of prepared, but I don't know if you have anything else that you want to add or any kind of advice that you'd want to leave off with other farriers or horse owners or veterinarians about, you know, this kind of topic of more evidence-based podiatry? Well, I, I, yeah, I do think, um, I think there are a couple of things in there. I think after I'll say years of working with veterinarians in particular, um, you know, if, uh, if we make any of the manipulations we make on a horse's foot, like if I raise the angle of the foot, I mentioned I'm going to take strain off of the deep flexor tendon, but I'm going to also impart more force or more strain on the suspensory ligament. How much? We don't know. I think it's really, really important for us to have an understanding if a horse is lame of where the discomfort's coming from before we just start implementing. I mean, sometimes you have to just make changes, and I do understand that. But if we're talking about ideal I think what we really need to do is this isn't something where, you know, we should be just working on our own. I think we should be collaborating with other people. I'm a much better farrier if I have a diagnosis. And that's always, that's not always an easy thing, but I can think of entire shoeing, you know, protocols that have been developed, you know, specifically in cases where, well, we didn't know why this horse was lame. So we did this and it got better. And now it's a whole shoeing system. (laughs) That bothers me because, you know, we don't even know what we're treating half the time. I do think it's really important. And I think one of the big things that I think, you know, I think farriers should be better. There was a study that was done in the UK, a survey of horse owners that found that only 6% of farriers, when presented with a lame horse, actually suggested to the owner that they call a veterinarian. That's silly. I, I mean, I think it's just, it's really unfortunate if we don't, you know, to me, that's a sign of professionalism is to recognize when we need to involve other people. And I think that's something that I, you know, if I have an MR, if I have a PET scan, if I have nuclear bone scan, if I have a CT that gives me a different information as a farrier and I know what I'm treating, that's my job as a therapeutic farrier to try and take strain off of whatever structure is causing the pain. And if I don't know what structure is the pain's emanating from, then I'm shooting in the dark. And I think that's something that we kind of get backwards a lot of times. Well, if I make the foot perfect, then soundness will follow. But, you know, if I have a very upright foot and this pain's coming from the deep flexor tendon, I do think it still makes sense to take, find another way to take more strain off of the deep flexor tendon. 
you know, and that's, that's, uh, maybe that's a bit of my soapbox issue. I think that from the veterinary perspective, I think this is such a confusing game and it's such a confusing with all the choices that we have available. I think it's really hard to, you know, bluntly, we just don't teach veterinarians enough about farriery. So I think, you know, the idea of like what we should have is somebody that specializes in diagnosing and identifying where the pain's coming from. And another group of people that specialize in how to, how to manipulate the forces that are on the foot and on the distal limb. We already do have it. I just don't think we utilize each other well enough in that regard. And I do think collaboration has got to be key. And that I'd include the rider and trainer in that as well. There are so many things that are outside of our control, you know, as, as people that are caring for feet that I think, you know, the more people we involve in the conversation, the better it works out for everybody. The more we can explain these things, the better it works out for everybody. And we're getting better at that. I mean, I don't want to make it sound like it's not a, you know, I think we have a lot of potential and it's been really interesting in my time as a farrier, which is now 35 years. I think we've really made phenomenal strides in this. I think farriers are working better with each other. I think we're a lot more tolerant of different ideas than we were in the past. Um, and I do think that, you know, there are a lot of different ways of, I think, farriers that there are people out there that specialize in handmade shoes and, and the skill and craftsmanship that goes into not only building shoes, but applying them like that, I think can only help horses. I think it's a phenomenal skill to have. But equally, I think there are plenty of times that horses can do very, very well without shoes. And I think there are also times when, you know, everything in between can work. So I think it's got to be, there's more than one way to get there. I think depending on I do a lot of work with glue-on shoes uh, and different polymers. I'm better at that than I am hand-making shoes. So recognizing that I have one set of skills and the next farrier has a different set of skills, I think it's it can be very frustrating from our perspective that there can be lots of different ways of getting there. And if you can work with people and express that, we're only going to come out ahead on this stuff. And I think we all need to be aware of that. I think I've referred cases to people when – you know, if I'm working on a racehorse that was lame and it becomes sound, I'm very, you know, there's a time when I'll sit down with the owner and say, hey, this horse is running in the Breeders' Cup. That's great. But I specialize in taking horses that are lame and getting them to sound. And there are other farriers that work on racehorses all the time. And I think you might consider using that or, you know, referring cases. I mean, I'm in a New Bolton Center is a place that sees a lot of referral cases, but I also refer a lot of cases to different people and different veterinarians and different farriers with different skill sets. And I think we need to almost get over some of our territorial aspects of, you know, this is the only way to do things. You know, a horse has to be in a glue-on shoe or it has to be barefoot or it has to be in a handmade shoe. It's Those aren't productive lines of thinking anymore. Right. Yeah. Like the horse has the final say, honestly. I mean, that's what I try to try to tell my clients. Like if I might be doing the right thing, but the horse has the final say. And if they don't like it, then I, it's my yeah. responsibility to change it up. So, yeah. yeah. Awesome. And as long as you're trying to stay educated and trying to stay, you know, like I've been showing horses for 35 years and I'm still trying to learn new things all the time and get better at what I do. Um, yeah. But I don't know many farriers or many, you know, hoof care providers that don't personally invest themselves in their work. I, I mean, I think for the most part, it's too hard and we have too much of our reputation involved with this. I mean, our reputation comes from us and from nothing else. And I know most of the people that I run into in our industry, you try really hard. I mean, this is too hard work. We're doing the best we can. So it's also kind of understanding that, 
you know, like a lot of the research that I'm referring to, it's not that farriers don't care to read it. It's that it's hidden from them. A lot of times these are behind firewalls and paywalls. And that's that can be a challenging aspect of trying to improve yourself. It's just actually getting access to the research that's already been done. So yeah. uh, we're trying and we are making huge progress. I mean, the difference in this industry now from 30 years ago is uh, it's it's it makes me smile because it makes me think that 30 years from now, we might actually be in a really good spot if we continue with this, uh, with what we've been doing in the last 30 years. We won't have it all figured out. I just want to keep moving in the right direction. Yeah. Awesome. Well, honestly, I feel like I could ask you a million more questions about balance and evidence-based research and everything. <laughs> and, and I don't want to steal up all your time on a Sunday, but I really appreciate you being willing to hop on a call and, and discuss these things. And, and maybe we can do it again at some point because I think that there's a lot yeah, more that we could talk about. I really do love having conversations about all of this stuff. It doesn't, you know, once we get past the point of arguing about it and just recognizing that none of us are right all the time, it's fun to discuss why something works, you know, on this horse, but not on this horse. I love those conversations. So anytime. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks again. And I hope you have a great rest of your Sunday. All right. Thanks. You too. I'll I'll be in touch. (laughs) Stay right. Thanks, Alicia. Bye. Bye. I always say that I'm slightly more hoof obsessed than the average person. And chances are, if you're listening to a hoof care podcast, you are too. So we should probably be friends. Feel free to find me on Facebook or email me at thehumblehoof at gmail.com.